Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Here with me today on How AI Happens is multi-time entrepreneur whose last venture was X.AI, recently acquired by Bizabo, Dennis Mortensen. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good, good. Thanks so much for having me. Really pleased to have you. You have lent your abilities to a, v- a variety of different use cases and companies. I'm really interested to hear about your journey and how you wound up in AI and all of your takes on the space. Let's start at the beginning, though. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your background, how you wound up deciding to play in the artificial intelligence space? Sure. I can give you the phone number for my mom, then you can get the (laughs) four-hour version, and it is spectacular. I guarantee you. Dennis was born at a young age. The the, uh, the shorter version is that I spent the last 26-some-odd years working on five distinct ventures all of them really rooted in the idea that I might be able to extract some value from a distinct data set. And each one of them, obviously, given time, became ever more sophisticated, not necessarily because I became smarter, just because technology advances. The last one we worked on was this idea that there might be an opening to go create this intelligent agent that can schedule meetings on your behalf. And we spent about half a decade trying to solve for that problem and got acquired last year. Congratulations. And I want to hear more about the intelligent agent, because I feel like there's a lot wrapped up in those two words. What do you mean when you say intelligent agent? I'm trying to paint a picture between the difference of you and me making a prediction, having some sort of prediction engine for where you give it an input, it gives you a prediction, say, what next song to listen to on Spotify, what next movie to watch on Netflix what product you might be willing or able to buy on Amazon and so on and so forth. All those recommenders are suggesting a next step. When I at least try to paint a different picture of the intelligent agent, it is that of trying to make a difference between that which you could perhaps suggest falls into the single task bucket and the agent which falls into the job bucket, meaning there's a job that is very likely requiring multiple turns and or multiple steps and requires an idea of when you reach a conclusion and upon conclusion, being able to kind of execute on what you've been able to assemble over those turns and get it to that point for where I would otherwise have been asked to do it myself, but the machine did it for me. And that is the, perhaps in a Venn diagram, overlapping set of ideas between the task and the job or the prediction and the agent. So do you believe that predictive and recommending piece, is that a significantly large swath of the AI landscape at this moment? Yes, almost all of it. And there's nothing negative in that. The whole umbrella of AI is really just one big ass prediction engine. And it's fantastic because it's been doing very well over the last at least uh, short of a decade where it's accelerated dramatically. There's a lot of pushback, positive pushback in the industry in general on whether we are on the right path. 
if we're on some sort of path where we hope to create this AGI come the end of it. And this path here for where we can almost decipher any image into a set of objects, we can almost decipher any text into an idea of what comes as the next word, the next sentence, the next paragraph. So we certainly aggressively kind of move forward, whether we're on that right path towards some all-knowing machine at the end, that's a different question. I've been, as a computer scientist, very positively surprised with what we've been able to do over the last decade. Certainly, if I look back on what we were able to extract when I took my degree 23-some-odd years ago. Is the reality of a lot of AI as a predictive engine, is that based on market needs or is that based on this notion that humans are also predictive engines and we're trying to replicate human thought? Good question. I do think many of the jobs you and I have as humans are jobs for where we're given a set of unstructured or semi-unstructured inputs, and then the firm hopes we are clever enough to take those inputs and turn them into an answer and a set of actions. A lot of those inputs are not constant or deterministic, and you have to apply a little bit of sometimes common sense, judgment, And this is really a prediction you make. It's just that we're very good at making predictions on very sparse data as humans, much better than machines many times. And well, some of those, we can both increase the accuracy and increase the speed and decrease the cost, but turn it into a machine prediction instead. Going back to the idea of this Venn diagram, right, with the scheduling service at X.ii overlapping on the predictive nature of previous tech. Why is that not a circle, I guess, is my question. Where does the overlap stop? And where does predictive as an approach stop being useful? So I can certainly tell you about the scary parts of what we did, which is that we made predictions on all sorts of things. First of all, if we all just can agree on the fact that language is just not a solved science. So why would anybody start any venture for where you hinge on the ability to predict some meaning from a set of unstructured characters, words, and paragraphs, that seems like crazy talk. Now, we thought and assumed that we might be able to carve out a corner of the language universe for where we surely wouldn't be able to understand language. And here's a footnote for anybody who's seen anything of late for where we've done some really kind of interesting work as an industry where you see the GPT-3 and similar come out with text for where it is so close to something which a human could have responded that you might not be able really on a sample of a dozen or more to say which ones did Rob write and which ones did the machine write. That doesn't mean that we've reached the inflection point of us knowing exactly what's in the text. So it means that we can now mimic a response that is to your satisfaction and is in line with what was expected. doesn't mean that we understand what was in it. In our particular vertical for where we need to schedule a meeting, it is not enough that I can mimic a response for where you feel that seems like a good enough response because I need to actually do the job, not mimic a dialogue. I need to do the job of getting you and me on the calendar for some specific week for half an hour on Zoom. So that particular job and the space we're in required full understanding 
to use the self-driving car as an analogy. It needs to take some sort of input where it needs to understand the world it exists in. It can't understand half of it. How should they actually navigate it? I mean, if you have an object in front of you and you don't know whether that's a baby or a plastic bag, I'm not so sure it is safe to kind of continue. So you need to understand all of the objects that you placed in that universe, obviously not a replica of the real world, but some sort of simplified version of that so you can kind of navigate it. And for us, it was the same. And we just thought it was a very small universe. It turned out to be, like many things, startup dramatically bigger than we had imagined. And the noise that comes attached to it and the fact that people are outright crazy, they seem normal when you look at them, but they are just untrustworthy, lying, not with, they don't even know they're lying, but they are all the time. Like, I'll give you a little example here. So Rob will shoot Dennis an email at 1 a.m. tonight saying, hey, Dennis, I come up with this idea. Can we speak first thing tomorrow morning? Which seems both sane, honest, correct, but it's a lie because tomorrow already started. It's 1 a.m., but most humans will use the word tomorrow all the way up to the point where they go to bed. Now, take 10,000 instances where we say something as human, which is technically incorrect, but I'm not really in the business of correcting you. I'm in the business of getting this on the calendar. So it was just dramatically harder than we had uh, imagined. That was the one part. The other part was, it's scary. And again, similar. And I'm not suggesting we had a challenge on par with a self-driving car, but it certainly had very many things similar to it, which is that the car derives many of its next predictions on some of its prior predictions, meaning that you actually rely on anything which you just did being true or true is. And if not, it can very quickly spiral out of control. And we saw the same, which is that if I'm in a conversation with five participants all at once, each on turn four in the dialogue, and remember, each turn is a whole host of kind of temporal predictions, location predictions, people predictions, and intent predictions on five people. If one of them starts to spiral out of control, and I believe it's true, then the whole conversation can very quickly go sour. And that was something for where perhaps if I could do it over again, I would immediately have cut out what we defined as multi-participant meetings because they almost get exponentially harder by every person added into the dialogue and just started with, let's see if we can get Rob and Dennis together. But I thought I already compressed it, but that was not the case. Sorry, I'm turning this into a little... Uh, Therapy session for Dennis. <laughs> no, that that's okay. We can go right into your relationship with your parents if you want to continue down, <laughs> down that thread. But it's interesting when you mentioned the notion of a human being knowing what tomorrow means, even if they send you an email at 1 a.m., but a machine not. So it's not enough to teach a machine a language. It needs to understand the ways in which humans use it incorrectly. There's that. Here's another bend to that challenge. The expectation of a machine response to the same question is different to that of a human response. So we spent, here's just a, a quick example, perhaps nine months alone on a specific feature that allowed for some common sense or really elasticity in your scheduling hours as any human EA would do. Say Rob 
is in downtown Manhattan, want to meet up with Dennis, you're only in New York for one day, I set my scheduling hours to end at five, but obviously, since we only meet every three years, I would stretch those hours to have you come by the office at 5.30, no biggie. And I would just trust my EA, human EA, to kind of have that in mind. And whenever she would, or he would execute on that, it would be all good and kosher. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can I make a prediction that suggests it is now allowed for me to kind of stretch your scheduling hours. And it took forever. As in, I can't do it every time. That means you have no scheduling hours. I can not ever do it. That means we have no elasticity. I can do it when it seems acceptable. That's a very kind of vague term. So as we put it into production, and we actually thought it did something very similar to that of a human EA, which is once every blue moon, I would stretch it ever so slightly. And it worked, in my words, fantastic. However, none of the users really understood it. As in, they understand the concept, but they would immediately go, what the hell? How much money do you need to raise to do an if-then statement? Because (laughs) 5.30, it's later than five, and I think I solved it for you. I said, they just went all in. Then when we went back in you know, hundreds, if not thousands of kind of support takers, explaining your friend, Suzanne, is in from Dallas for one day, and we assumed, given the delta between this and the last meeting or some elements of the dialogue, that you would be willing to stretch it, so we've done so. Oh, I'm surprised. Do you support that? Of course I want to do the meeting. So it's actually something which we saw from a science point of view, but spent a lot of product design thinking to almost solve it. And in the end, we ended up doing something which I was just almost personally against for the longest period of time, which is to start to communicate not as a human, but as a machine. And that means we would typically over-communicate. We'd actually apply justification for some of our decisions so we were not a black box. When you work with humans, they're mostly kind of black boxes, as in you won't provide much kind of justification for your actions unless they are out of the norm. So we started to inject that. That did wonders, but that was not part of really a science challenge. That was part of a machine agent to human agent kind of dialogue challenge. I'll give you another one. And sorry, then I'll, uh, I'll leave you here. We also found, and again, I naively assumed early on that the inflection point for our success would be us being as good or just on par with the human assistant. And of course, human assistants existed in our universe, as in, I set up a meeting with Rob, Rob has an EA, can I have that EA communicate with the system? So we could see their level of accuracy, you know, response speed, understanding of time zones and all sorts of kind of things. And the interesting thing is we knew exactly how well they did. And we knew exactly how well the machine did. Two things came out of this. One, there's actually a couple of studies for the geeks out there, if you want to have a look at them, for where I believe it was on stock trades. They had a machine do a set of trades with a set number of built mistakes and had a human do the same. And the willingness to forgive just didn't exist at the same level for the machine, which is interesting because people get almost immediate expectations of superhuman performance once you attach a machine to it. Not one for where I used to yesterday with humans be willing to accept this level of mistakes. 
I'm not anymore. Not since you introduced the machine then. Now I want superhuman performance. That was the first surprise, which made it harder. The second one, which was more difficult to explain and design around, which is that humans make, obviously, human mistakes. As in, you forget that over the summer, there's like three weeks is where there's only four hours between London and New York. Ah, damn it, yes. Daylight saving is a little bit different in England versus uh, the US. And uh, we all make the mistake once a year and that's fine. But the human mistake, things that uh, I both understand and can empathize with, machines will never make that mistake. They'll have all the time zones memorized for the next kind of century into the future. I think that is the easy part. No, it'll make machine-like mistakes that you don't understand and can't empathize with. That was uh, a forever struggle to explain to non-technical people, or people actually not even interested. They just noticed the fact that you did something which I didn't like and I don't understand and I can't really empathize with because this was, this in my mind, the simplest of requests. And we tried then to explain, well, we operated with two types of temporal expressions, what we call negative time and positive time. Negative time is you distinctly telling me that you can't do Tuesday. Positive time is you either saying nothing or giving me a set of windows that I can use outside of your kind of preferences. We had a lot of challenges on negative time, which is that you come up with this long sobbing story about having to do something. And we have to kind of decipher that little essay of yours into a fact you can't do Tuesday. Because you wouldn't write, Rob, can't do Tuesday. Can we do X, Y, and C? No, it was always one of, hey, my kid has a thing at school and I can't really not do the play. Hey, by the way, it's a long story where this I know and I can see means you can't do Tuesday. But you, you do understand that's kind of hard to decipher for a machine that this means not Tuesday, right? So it was just a very interesting kind of space to be in. It all boils down to humans have empathy for other humans, but not for machines. And what's interesting is people want disruption, but only if it works perfectly. I had an experience like this where I was in a Starbucks in San Francisco probably five or six years ago, right around the time Apple Pay was coming out. And someone at the front of the line was trying to use their Apple Watch to do the Apple Pay. And it was taking a minute, like not a long time, but longer than it would take to swipe a credit card or pay in cash. And the Starbucks turned on this woman and started booing her. <laughs> and you'd think if there was anywhere on the planet where people would understand, it would be San Francisco. But no, people were miffed. They're like, no, just use your credit card and let's keep this moving. So there is this expectation that it has to work perfectly. Related, though, back to the empathy thing. Is it reasonable to ever expect humans to extend the same empathy to a machine that they would to another human being? Perhaps the answer is yes. Let me just quickly poke you on what you said before, which is perhaps subtle but important. So sometimes we'll be exposed to technology that doesn't work perfectly just yet alone and we'll struggle a little bit and be willing to overcome it. As soon as you introduce things like embarrassment, pride and what have you into the equation, meaning that you're actually at Starbucks in front of other people and you could be slightly embarrassed if you're not a geek, then it becomes exponentially harder to have people 
accept your mistakes because it hurts you know so much more we were in a similar space for where when we made mistakes it is okay if it was just you having to in photoshop crop that image again ah damn it i should have known it doesn't do the border or whatever no we typically made the mistake on your guests you now look foolish and it was just the worst place to be at as in We tried to figure out what the curve looked like on how many good interactions do I need for me to be able to build up enough of a relationship where I can survive as a non-churning event, a negative experience. And that was a dramatically large account. As soon as you go out of the, it's not just Rob who's affected, but people outside of that. Now, coming back to your question, is it reasonable to suggest to have some form of empathy for the machines. There was a study, I actually don't remember the study, I remember the write-up in the New York Times that suggested that it is not just the machine which is being affected by your rudeness or whatever it might be. Perhaps who is changing in this is you. So it's not that we need to treat machines nicely because they don't care. We should treat machines nicely because if we don't, we might change along the way. And that was interesting. As in, Rob used to be nice, but after he bought that Alexa, he's just a little less nice. As in, a little bit more crude, as in, borderline an asshole. He changed. It's not that dramatic. They did do a test though, again, in this particular study, and people should kind of look it up for where They did it on kids. And the whole thing was actually just a little sad when you read it for where, of course, in the very young version of you, where you don't yet know what is right or wrong, how to behave really, the real world does a very good job of telling you. As in, another little kid will punch you in the face or tell you to your face exactly how chubby you are. And you will learn that I probably shouldn't have said that because when he told me that hurt, machines, not so much. And that means you could actually end up morphing kids into other versions of not so healthy kids in the future if you don't have this in mind. And I remember, and I don't know whether they kept it or whether it was just a, a test, that the Alexa actually had a mode for where it wouldn't execute the command if you did it as a rude ask. And I think it was some sort of kids mode. And I'm not sure whether they kind of kept it or not, but I certainly took a mental note of it thinking that is probably the right thing to do. As in, I don't want my kids doing 50 requests to Alexa all day long and them just being ever more aggressive. There needs to be some sort of response for where, well, that didn't work. So if you want to kind of play that video or hear that song, ask me nicely. The reason that I wouldn't be rude in a request to you, Dennis, is because I want you to do what I want, right? I want you to comply with the request, which an Alexa will do no matter what, except in this in the case of that setting. But also because I know you have feelings and thoughts and emotions. And if I'm rude to you, I don't want to like ruin your day. I don't want to be like, we get off this call and then Dennis goes and complains like, oh, I met with this guy who was a total jerk. Now I'm all worked up, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to like inflict harm on your day and your feelings and, and, and what have you. A machine doesn't have that going on. So I'm polite to machines because they're learning from us and I want them to be polite. But I can understand why someone else would be like, look, I'll give a person space and forgiveness and empathy that I won't give to a machine. Do you think that's a part of it? Most certainly. And somehow 
in many of the models we go apply to the real world, we make the assumption that people are somewhat rational, but they're not. I think we figured that out many moons ago. I just wish, though, in our implementation of these agents that we would be a little bit more rational, which is that I want a job done at a level of accuracy which I find acceptable for the price which I'm paying for the job. Rob hires Dennis to do a job. You have some expectation of my ability to do that job and do it to the best of my ability and hope it kind of fits within what you had imagined. And if not, well, then you'll go find another one who can actually do the job. I would just hope, at least if we are to kind of implement all these intelligent agents in the future, which seems very likely, that we understand they don't necessarily all need to be superhuman. They need to do the job which I've hired them to do at the level of accuracy, which I expect for the price that I'm paying versus the kind of superhuman expectation for where, well, you might actually be poorer off because of it if you're not willing to accept that, well, it will make these mistakes. This is not a justification for my kind of prior uh, venture here, which might kind of sound like that, but I do like the fact that pick a number, 18 out of 20 requests I do to Alexa to play a song from the Spotify app goes as I expected. Then there's two for where that's not what I asked. I still use it though, because I think that is a fair price to pay. And the cost of error is, of course, there's other domains for where the cost of error is much, much higher. Right, right. Where the higher the stakes are, the more important accuracy is. Accuracy in a recommendation engine on Netflix is not so important as the example earlier where LiDAR has to decide if this is a baby or a bag of garbage. And I'll push back, but uh, just sit on that for a second for where you and me, if we're just completely utilitarian, would assume that any number of deaths less than 40,000 or whatever the number is for this year in traffic deaths is a good one. And we should immediately flip over to self-driving cars. But I think both you and me know that's not going to happen. As it needs to be a number much, much lower. As in, there'll be unwillingness to accept, well... Waymo, they kill about 21K a year. Are we okay with that? Probably not. Even though Jane and John Doe, they kill 40K. I said, I can't play out the scenario of where society finds that acceptable, even though we probably should. So is this just a misalignment of expectation between the consumer and the ability of technology? Meaning we expect things to be superhuman, as you put it, right? We expect things to be really, really much more advanced than a human does it. And if they're not much more advanced, then we say we shouldn't bother. Or is this a market problem? What is the issue here, do you think? The version for where we have a piece of technology that ends up killing somebody is the most dramatic version we can come up with. But it's certainly one for where it is being tested uh, as we speak. So it's not completely made up. I'm not sure what it is, but I do see it play out in many places for where I wish some part of our education, wherever that happens, will have us better understand how software fits into our lives for where a generation before us didn't really have to kind of bother with that because most of their life, private and work life, didn't really have much of an attachment to a software. Today though, and especially our kids, those things are completely intertwined. And you must start to have some sort of attitude towards when do I kind of deploy my software? When do I terminate it? 
when is this a job for a human and a human only? When is this a job for a machine or machine only? When can they share? And we don't have a good raw intuition about when we choose to not use technology and when we uh, should be acceptable of the errors. That intuition just kind of seems off to me. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think the difference between expectation and what people will pay, what like when you, you gave the example of oh, 18 out of 20 songs, correct, feels valuable for the cost of using this versus walking over and selecting it yourself. So I think that sort of approach can be applied to any other use case, right? Where the accuracy and the performance is commensurate with the price. Right now for self-driving cars, for example, it's a very high price, right? And so is it significantly better than a human driving in your average driver's mind, maybe not, even if that's that's not the case. But is it worth me paying an extra forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars for a car? Probably not. I think it's probably the calculus people are running right now. So in the same way as the Apple Watch and the Starbucks, it's like, okay, this is now there's social capital at stake here. It's not much better. It's like, and it's a little bit worse even, or even if it was only a little better, I'm still irritated because it represents a change that I'm not comfortable with for for it having been disruptive, I guess. I don't know. It, it just, it feels like the way we approach these calculations is completely unreasonable, frankly. It, it does. My hope though, is that there's a generation arriving as we speak for where that raw intuition it's just better tuned. I think I can go back and do a little bit of calculus to come to a same conclusion so that my intuition is a little bit more fine-tuned. But I do hope there's a whole kind of generation in front of us for where it just comes very natural, like many other things in life for where we have good intuitions on what is the next step. This just seems a little bit off-kilter. I think you're right. I think we must remember how new this technology is, right? It's not new to the people working in the space who have been doing it for perhaps 10 and more years and who think about it every day. But to the average consumer, it's quite new. And also, I think it it's just less about AI and machine learning than it is about just the way technology is generally accepted. Like if you look back to like sending an email via dial-up was not probably better than sending a fax. And I'm sure there were plenty of people who were like, why would I spend, you know, six minutes getting my internet on and then typing something out when a fax takes 30 seconds? And it's like, well, look, an email is better, right? Because you can send it to more people and there's a record of it and blah, 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 all these other reasons. But people are resistant to change, I think. That's probably what we're dealing with here. Less than this, like, fear of some sort of AI being a different sort of technological life form. And I also think it's because multiple changes are happening at the same time. So many times you'll see a single change and you can kind of wrap your head around the single change and even force yourself into a new setting, a new acceptable kind of setting. This though is many things at once. So one of the things that we assumed would be true by May 2022, certainly when we started, was that the conversational UI, if you think of it as a UI paradigm, would have been on equal footing with some of the prior UI paradigms. As in, I took my CS degree on the command line. My mom kind of grew up on the graphical user interface. My kids grew up on the mobile UI, if that's a distinct UI compared to the graphical one. And then we have this conversational UI that I assumed, given we started in 2014, by 2022, and many others assumed as well, would be a large part of that pie chart of the UIs we would use on a daily basis. Not that it would overtake any one of the others, just like today, you probably touched at least two UI paradigms, but 
voice would or three voice would have been not a single digit, which I think it exists in today, but kind of a double digit. Often we would speak to our computers, but not really. Uh, if you sit on a Mac, as in you probably didn't use Siri on your Mac today or yesterday, even though many of the things are faster if you use voice, as in this is not scientific. But I did a little test because it annoyed me, and I shouldn't have been annoyed, but I were, that one of my kids used voice for their calculator. I still to this day, and you're probably the same, use your fingers for your calculator. It is not faster, not even close. It is just way faster to use voice to do just basic calculations. You're doing some math homework and you need uh, some of the parts. But even though we did the little test, we did X number of things, I typed them out, she kind of voiced them out, not even close. And I, and I actually worked it. I, do, I don't type that fast, but I, I worked it. Like this is a competition <laughs> I want to win, but not even close. Even upon learning that, I used my calculator like two hours ago, I typed it in. So what is it in my mind that have me not being willing to just kind of ask it? We're creatures of habit, even a technological man like you. And I'm sure your daughter, after the competition ended, looked up at you and said, the future's now, old man. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Dennis, this has been a fantastic chat. We're creeping up on Optimal Podcast length here. Before I let you go, I want to ask you to maybe prognosticate a little bit or just to share with me what in this space of AI is most exciting to you when you look at some of the work being done, whatever the use case is, are there any research papers or reports that have come out recently that make you truly excited about the way this technology is being deployed? There's so many good things going on as we speak, but perhaps as a general theme, I am very excited about our current ability as an industry to generate text. And we are surely closer, but still far from truly understanding text. We can do tons of positive predictions on unstructured text and create all sorts of kind of products around that. But our current ability to generate text that hold real meaning is very impressive. And we've all kind of been exposed to it. And I don't think we've really seen yet all the kind of wonderful products that is about to kind of come out and the expectations for where even the little ones, and it arrived, what, a decade and a half ago, two decades perhaps for where autocomplete, it is almost kind of difficult if you don't have autocomplete today. I said, what is this? Something is wrong. But autocomplete is just the short version for where it should really be. And we're close now. You can even see that in your Gmail. You kind of get half sentence complete now versus the kind of word autocomplete. But why don't we really see that turn into full sentence, full paragraph, complete for where I'm going to describe the parameters. And it's not just for kind of raw text in code. I've been, uh, if, if you checked it out yourself or somebody listening here, if you checked out Copilot, which is, let's call it a plugin or engine from GitHub that allows you on code even just to describe, either you do it as a kind of one-line comment, it'll write the function for you, or you write a function header, and it writes the function in full, including kind of sub-functions. And then it is so good that it's kind of scary for where sometimes I've imagined something. Like, I should also kind of make sure I have this case in mind, and I write something, and then the autocomplete, and it does not just 
autocomplete on syntax. No, it will write out a whole function for where that little kind of edge case I had imagined, it wrote that out as well. I was thinking, damn, where did that come from? Uh, it just excites me. And again, anybody who tries it, you just go in and write, do a little kind of comment, find first 200 prime numbers, and then tab, ah, oh, here's a function for that. Oh, it requires a sub-function. Ah, oh, then we write the function head of that, then it writes that whole function. It's just uh, very good. You see the same with some of the kind of write copy for where, if not full blog post, then certainly kind of paragraphs and headers and what have you. It's just, uh, it's just very good. That excites me, as you can hear. I love it. Dennis, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being with me here and sharing your views and your experience. I've loved chatting with you today. Time well spent. Cheers, mate. How AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI. Specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to Sama.com.